This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode of the GabFest contains explicit language. Hello, hello. Yep, headphones are on. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political GabFest for September 17th, 2020, the giant Fires Everywhere edition. I am David Plotz in Washington, D.C. I am joined from New Haven, Connecticut, from her home by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. Hey, Jamel. Hey, John. That was too soon. You couldn't tell. They haven't been introduced yet. People don't even know they're there. We don't exist until we're introduced. I know, but I'm looking at their smiling faces. Continue. Also joining us, of course, is John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes from New York. Hello, John. Hello, David. Hello, Jamel. Hello, Emily. And joining us for the whole show today, thank goodness, is the New York Times columnist Jamel Bowie from Charlottesville. Hello, Jamel. Hello there. I, uh, I'm not going to go through this uh, round of hellos. Yes, this ridiculousness. <laughs> we are live. We're live today. We're live on YouTube and Facebook here on Wednesday evening as part of the Texas Tribune's virtual festival. We always love being with the Texas Tribune. We were in Austin last year, I think, for this. Certainly, we've been in Austin for the show. Two years ago? Maybe two years ago. No, we were there and last year. And I cannot... I think it was last oh, year. Last I, year? Yeah. Everything, time, the, the kind of dilation and, and compression of time, craziness. I, for one, cannot wait to get back to Austin post-pandemic. Um, before we get started, we want your questions, listeners. Please drop them in the comment section, wherever you are. We will answer the questions that we can. So put them in the comment section, either on YouTube or Facebook or wherever you're watching us, and uh, we will answer anything we can. On today's GabFest, the forest fires that are scorching the West, polluting the air. The climate crisis is here. Are we remotely capable of tackling it? Then a top Trump official accuses government scientists of sedition and warns of an armed insurrection by the left to steal the election from Trump. Can the American system survive when a significant minority of Americans no longer believe in the legitimacy of politics? and elections or the legitimacy of their political opponents. And how is that going to play out during this campaign? And then the pandemic has a renewed interest in different kinds of work arrangements and work schedules. So should we work less or more specifically, should we work a four day week? Those of us who work five day weeks. Plus we will of course have cocktail chatter. Fires have now burned more than 5 million acres of the West this fire season, an area the size of Emily's dear state of Connecticut. And while there may be some relief coming in Oregon and Washington, California in particular remains dry and scorching, and we are only in the middle of fire season. Smoke has made the air throughout the West some of the most dangerous air in the world to breathe, and has even made the sky eerie here on the East Coast. I don't know if you guys saw this in D.C. where I was. This, the sunrise yesterday was spooky. It was absolutely spooky. And meanwhile, we have a hurricane, Hurricane Sally, which is dropping essentially infinite amounts of water on the Gulf Coast, an irony that is not lost on anyone. There's historic and catastrophic flooding, according to the National Weather Service. So, Emily, this 
when we think about the fires in particular, this is a series of man-made tragedies, an agglomeration of man-made tragedies. There's not one single thing, right? Right. There is climate change, the heating of the earth. Um, it's not a coincidence that these fires are happening right after a record heat wave on the West Coast. But then you also have these decisions to build in um, the wildland urban interface, a phrase I had not heard until last week, the wooey, but to extend housing out into these areas that have all of these combustible timber where it's more dangerous fire-wise for people to live, but it's also affordable in a way that um, cities like San Francisco are not. So you have these combination of human choices. Um, and I think a just real failure of our political system to grapple with this and do anything to change the incentives. Um, and then these just monumental scorchings of the earth. I mean, I'm sure that people listening and watching have seen the pictures and the images, but I just... I was struck by this statistic that the Bear Fire is ravaging more or as much as all of the fires of 2019. And that's just one of the many huge fires that are happening right now. So we're just seeing this colossal scale that that feels like it's portends more to come in future years. Six, just to add one quick fact to add to Emily, six of California's 10 largest wildfires have happened since 2018 and five of them have happened this year. Jamel, Biden called Trump a climate arsonist while Trump and the conservative media have focused on this line. They blamed it solely on these fire suppression policies. These now retrospectively, apparently super misguided fire suppression policies, which have allowed huge amounts of, of kindling effectively to build up throughout California rather than allowing a lot of stuff to burn regularly as, as it used to before, before, we, um, before we stopped it. Do you think this is a, I mean, is this a fundamentally political issue or is this is this something that we can get out of politics at all? I mean, I think it's a funda fundamental political issue in, in that it is an issue that deals, as you kind of alluded to, very intimately with habitation patterns, the kinds of communities we're building, the kinds of, uh, the kind of state California has built for itself um, or Oregon or wherever the wildfires are. Reaching, and so I don't, I'm not sure you could take it out of politics. I think I do think that kind of the key mitigation uh, strategies California could take aren't don't necessarily the issues don't necessarily fall along kind of left right Republican Democratic traditional partisan lines. So part of the problem here is that human habitation has you know moved into these areas close to wilderness where, for example, a gender reveal party gone wrong can spark a massive fire. And the reason uh, we're building homes out there is because it's too expensive on the coast. And the reason it's too expensive it's on the coast is because it's illegal to build additional housing on the coast effectively. You can't really densify by law large swaths of San Francisco or San Diego or any other coastal, coastal town. Now, the political coalition of people who want to densify coastal California comprises mostly liberals. The political coalition of people who are opposed to densifying coastal California also comprises mostly liberals, right? It's a very contentious political issue, but it isn't necessarily a left-right issue. You know, President Trump 
uh, since last month, roughly maybe two months ago, has been kind of running against dense housing in the suburbs, you know, associating it with crime and all sorts of things. And this is sort of like the first time this has come up to the level of national politics. And to the extent that, you know, there are ways to pursue solutions, Trump coming out against dense housing might be the best thing that could happen for people who want to densify coastal California, because it suddenly makes opposition to densifying coastal California kind of a pro-Trump issue. It's a weird way it's 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 interacting on like political on the, on local politics, but I think the, the, my main point is that this isn't outside of big climate policy, which you know has an effect down the line, but doesn't have an immediate effect. Um, the stuff you could do now isn't it's not really partisan, um, but that doesn't mean it's not political. But that's a great point. I mean, because the fight is like a nimby yimby fight, right? Not right. in my backyard. Yes, in my mm-hmm. backyard, being fought presumably among Democrats who make up the majority in California, but maybe Trump has succeeded in polarizing it in a way that could affect some of the NIMBY folks to move away from. Although it. my suspicion is that the people who are living, sorry, John, my suspicion mm-hmm. is that the people who are living on the on the wilder, what is, what's your term, Emily? The Mui, the Maui, the Wui, the wildland living in the Wui, actually are not. They are not uh, liberals who would otherwise be living in condos in San Francisco. I suspect it's it's probably like the people who live in rural America and and, and exurban America are conservative people. So it is true that the liberals are fighting over building in San Francisco, but that's not the same as saying that it is liberals who are being driven out to the wooey. It is probably conservatives in the way. That would be my posit. John, sorry, well, go ahead. I was just going to say that, I mean, the other political angle is the, is the, I mean, the National Climate Assessment in 2000 predicted that this would happen, that there would, that the risk of fires as a result of global warming uh, would, would increase. And as I understand it, so that's back in 2000. Then the president's National Climate Assessment in 2017 and 2018 predicted the same thing. Um, and as I understand it, it's not just um, climate doesn't just mean there's going to be more fires, but they are going to be of a different kind that are harder to fight where you get these towers, these towers of fire and you get the winds that create um, intense blazes that that um, what are they called? Pyro cumulus clouds, um, which in turn create these lightning storms that we've had, which means that the, the and fire tornadoes. I mean, that's um, that's the result of climate change, uh, which obviously is a highly political issue. But so, John, um, one of the things that I think is so weird about this is that because these fires are happening in states that are not at issue in the presidential election. This president does not give a, a damn about them. Uh, it, there's, there's no interest in... If you, you know that if this, these fires were happening in Wisconsin right now, there would be $500 billion worth of fire relief that was going in. The president would be flying Air Force One and dropping retardant from Air Force One. So, the, uh, I mean, I just... That's just an observation. It seems like a that's a tragedy of the American political system right now. Well, you saw on Tuesday evening in the uh, ABC town hall that the president talked about um, sort of Democratic Democrat states, as he called them. And George Stephanopoulos said, well, don't you represent the entire country? Um, and he ultimately said, well, yes, I'm the president of the entire country. But it was clear in that instance, and it's been clear since the since the first tax cut was talked about internally in the Trump 
White House as one that would punish blue states and reward red states, that that his men that his mindset and we certainly saw this with um, in terms of hurricanes when they hit Texas and Florida, his reaction was noticeably different than when it hits Puerto Rico, that the asymmetry of concern from the president has been a thorough line. And this obviously is an, is another I mean, the parallels to the response to covid when he was in that briefing and said, basically, the fires will go away. It's going to get or it's going to get cooler. It was I thought somebody was joking when they quoted that because it was so similar to the response he had given uh, at least 32 times during the rise of covid that it's that it's just going to go away. Well, he also said today, did you guys see that he said basically speaking? I mean, just in in the comparison, he he said, well, if you discount the deaths in blue states, we're doing pretty well when he was talking about covid. I mean, he really thinks about every issue in this way, in a way that's so poisonous for the country. I mean, the other thing about the the Trump moment at the press conference in California was, again, saying dismissing the idea that science points to climate change as this important cause. And I mean, obviously, we've seen Trump be very denying of scientific consensus in the coronavirus story all spring. But and we've heard him say it again about climate change, but it just shows into throws into sharp relief this contrast between the Republican stance, at least of the president and the Democrats. And I was interested to read some Republican pollsters saying, you know what, like we've moved beyond this as reality at the moment. I mean, what we're seeing is so clearly informed by climate change, the way that insurance companies are going to respond to this, planning for the future, you know, by cities and states, by the military, is so informed by the reality of warming that to have Trump continuing to claim that, you know, the scientists don't really know, it it just really stands out. But is it in any sense politically bad for him? I mean, you, you would th- like right now there's a hurricane that is flooding Alabama. Like it's an enormous hurricane at Florida, Alabama, Georgia. I mean, Georgia and Florida, those are those are states that that matter. I mean, it's a huge hurricane. And yet climate and yet this climate is not top of mind for anybody. No, I, I find it. I find it strange. I was just about to mention the hurricane in relation to the, the Gulf Coast states, because part of Alabama is on the coast, Georgia, you know, Florida, these are red states or states with Republican governments that rely greatly on tourist dollars, that rely on their coastal regions as economic engines. And so you think that's strictly from a, we want to keep the state in the best you know, fiscal shape as possible. You would think that there would be this concern with climate change, um, with its implications for, you know, uh, coastal Alabama, which could be destroyed by climate disaster. I'm not going to psychologize, I can't get into the mindset of, you know, pl- uh, of these political leaders, but just as an observer, setting aside ideology, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. To the extent that it does make sense, it's only if denial of climate change has become part of like the package of beliefs that signify Republican identity. If it now to be Republican means I also do not believe in climate change, then you just have to, <laughs> the challenge is to find some way to like uncouple those beliefs. I mean, part of me to go to the, uh, the, you know, Trump dismissing fires in California because it's a blue state or whatever. Part of you wonders if all of this, not all of it, but if some of it is kind of an effect of just the electoral college <laughs> that like 
if you don't have a political incentive to try to, you know, win over climate change concern Republicans in California or in uh, New York, for that matter, then you're not going to. And although I'm sort of a, a long time, you know, crusader against the Electoral College, also just on a practical level, it seems like it would be healthier for the country's politics if national politicians had to assemble you know, coalitions based off of shared interests rather than just, you know, what state people happen to be in. And that might mean Republican candidates campaigning for, again, the large number of voters, Republican voters in states that are sort of dramatically affected by climate change. Yeah, that's such a good point. Because it if you think of all of those sort of wasted Republican votes, some of those people might be less devoted to the climate change is a hoax kind of Fox News viewing part wing of the party, right? Because, I mean, we saw Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity back Trump up on the skepticism that climate change is causing the fires. You could imagine that Republicans who live in these affected areas are less prone to be in that camp. Emily, there's a question from Hondo, one of our listeners. It's a really good question. With regard to the fires, could you discuss the intersection between climate justice and social justice? So... I think one of the points is that like that 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 pe- the people disproportionately affected by climate are also people who are poorer and tend to be people of color. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's true. First of all, globally, when we look at where parts of the earth are warming, who is going to have to move? Um, there's an amazing feature in the, um, my home, the New York Times Magazine, this week about the the amount of the percentage of the globe that is uninhabitable because of temperatures rising is currently 1% is going to grow to almost 20%. And so when you look at that force, it's true. And then, you know, there also are these maps showing that people who live in cities in areas that used to be redlined, there are fewer trees, they're more affected. Um, And then obviously, if you have to move and you're Housing is unsettled because of the fires. If you have fewer resources, that's a heavier burden to bear. I wonder if we're seeing enough activism around this um, in a way to try to entice young people to the polls. I mean, this is climate. Young young voters rank climate as a higher concern than older voters. They kind of get it. It's their world. They're going to inherit. And I wonder if we're just seeing enough, like, urgency about that because, um, you know, historically people in their 20s and late teens don't vote as at high rates. And so you would think that this could be galvanizing, but we'll have to see if that actually translates because people always say that there's going to be some reason that young people come to the polls in greater numbers. And then that tends to be disappointing. John, do you think that this that report in the Times is amazing? I mean, I think to put some flesh on it, Emily, it's 1 billion people are living in places that are about to become in the next, in our lifetimes, basically, in Jamel's lifetime anyway, because he's so young, uh, literally uninhabitable, that literally people will not be able to live there. Human beings cannot live there and be outside. I mean, I suppose we could build, you know, turtle cities there, underground cities there. That's a billion people who have to go somewhere. So is there, is the, is there, is there anything that you see, John, in, in our policies and our debates and in, in anything that's happening in the world that makes you think, oh, we are going to be able to accommodate this because it's, it's just a fact. It is a fact that's going to happen. Things are going to burn. People right. are going to die or move. Well, you have two. Yes. And and also just to, if, if you want to uh, pull the shades all the way down and make it in just completely dark, 
you know, scientists say that the carbon dioxide that's already trapped in the Earth's atmosphere has now passed the point uh, where we can avert the most the worst effects of, of global warming. So so even if there was a full throated effect to address the issue, we still have further pounding to take. And you talk about those one billion people. This is why increasingly, um, certainly during the Obama years, but even now when you talk to national security experts, remember Bernie Sanders was mocked uh, when he said this in 2016, but um, that climate change is a national security threat because those one billion destabilize other countries. Those one billion end up causing problems for the United States. And so it's not just what may happen domestically, but it's the the knock-on effects of that kind of destabilization all across the globe. Do I think there's a solution? Well, I mean, we are in we are in the high age of short-term thinking, and um, something has to break us out of that. And I don't, you know, it can be a president, um, but it used to be that the presidents didn't, you know, you, you would hope that it would this would reside in a functioning Congress because the members of Congress are around longer. The members of Congress have a different set, uh, at least in the way it was supposed to be designed, should have different sets of incentives that make them longer term uh, thinkers than a president. So I don't see, but of course, con- that Congress doesn't work that way anymore. So I don't see a collective action you know, process for handling this um, when we have failed on so many other things that require something more than uh, short-term thinking. Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And you can go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. It's just $35 for your first year. You will be supporting the great journalism that Slate does and supporting some of the work that we do. And it allows us to do extra segments on the GabFest, which is really fun for us. Today's Slate Plus segment is going to be questions. We're going to do a Q&A with the audience here on this live stream. So please go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, And if you are so inclined, become a member today. The potential for violence and for a catastrophic, disastrous outcome of the presidential election is very, 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 very high. Both the left and the right are viewing this election in what Tom Edsel today in the Times called apocalyptic terms. The Republican Party has been conditioning its voters to mistrust elections. Democratic voters are just very angry at the preposterous electoral college system, which which causes uh, the, the votes of millions and millions of people to effectively not matter. An increasing number of Americans, mostly concentrated on the right, simply just don't believe in the legitimacy of electoral politics or of their opposition party. And each side is accusing the other of plotting a, a violent coup this week. A leading Trump official, Michael Caputo, said that out loud. He said, you know, quote, and when Donald Trump refuses to stand down at the inauguration, the shooting will begin. The drills you've seen are nothing. If you carry guns, buy ammunition, ladies and gentlemen, because it's going to be hard to get. Caputo just took a medical leave because his, his remarks were so controversial. But but Jamel, as you wrote this week, Caputo may have been sidelined, but he reflects a very powerful stream of thought on the right and to a lesser extent on the left. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I don't really know uh, what to say about all of this. It's bad. <laughs> it's, um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's not, it's, it's not actually funny. And yet what choice do we have right. other than to laugh a little bit? I mean, to cry. Sort of the, the principal problem, right? I mean, sort of the, the marquee problem is that the president himself has sort of made this 
delegitimization of the election process kind of central to his message. He's constantly, constantly saying, if I don't win, it's rigged, that you can't trust mail-in voting. And the Attorney General Bill Barr, I believe I could this today or yesterday, you know, they're going to have warehouses full of ballots that they're just going to ship in, and it's all going to be a fraud. And so that's sort of the steady drumbeat. And there's not really any resistance to it among mainstream conservative outlets. You don't hear resistance to this on Fox News. You don't hear resistance to this on conservative talk radio. Um, it's, it's either ignored or affirmed. And so you have the president with this message. You have it being ignored or affirmed. And naturally, Republican voters are extremely mistrustful of the process. On the other side, the very fact that the president appears very interested in dismissing or uh, you know, invalidating as many ballots as he can has fueled a lot of fear and distrust on the left. Um, and you know, this is added to the fact uh, that right now, you know, if, if the margin in the election shrinks to Biden is up three or four points, that's effectively a coin toss for the Electoral College. And so you have the situation where liberals and Democrats and just Trump opponents recognize that their margin of error is actually pretty narrow here, um, that they could win more votes and by a considerable number of more votes, a, a three and a half point margin, for example, would be millions of votes. And it doesn't necessarily guarantee an electoral college win. And they, they, they see this and they also see you know, the president, the attorney general attack mail-in voting. They see you know, Republican legislatures in states like Wisconsin take steps to make it more difficult for voters to receive ballots in the midst of a pandemic. They see Republican judges and justices on the federal courts do the same. Um, and they're, I think they're rightfully paranoid of what may happen. And then, you know, assuming the election goes off and, and happens smoothly or even like semi-smoothly, there's sort of a, a belief, and I don't think an unjustified belief, that the president is going to, you know, if on election night there are still a lot of ballots to be counted, but he appears to be ahead because of his voters are more likely to vote in person, uh, there's a real fear he'll just declare victory and attempt to stop counting uh, however way he can. That's the situation. And unfortunately, the only way you could resolve it is if the president stopped talking the way he's talking, right? If, if President Trump just stopped doing this and, you know, could embrace boilerplate about what, having free and fair elections and everybody, um, everybody's voice and vote being able to count, then this would turn down the temperature considerably. But because he's not, we're going to go into November completely on edge and with... Uh, with a real fear of violence and unrest. So, Emily, this Edsel column surveyed political scientists, and essentially every single political scientist surveyed cited a massive risk of electoral violence, both in the buildup and mostly in the aftermath of the election. I mean, like this is sort of making Bush v. Gore look like a cabbage patch pitch picnic. What is to be done? <laughs> 
I keep thinking back to 2000. We did not have a buildup before the 2000 election that was a polarizing fight over methods of voting, which is what we're having now, right? So Trump is delegitimizing voting by mail because more Democrats than Republicans say that's how they're planning to vote. And that's creating these images of, um, you know, warehouses and uncounted ballots and these vastly exaggerated false claims of fraud. Democrats are are saying are pointing at the president and saying that he's creating this atmosphere of fear and sowing distrust. And that could be a reason to doubt the results for Democrats. What do you do about that? Uh, How what what has to happen in the voting process? How well does it have to go? What's the standard for how people get to vote that crosses our threshold for a fair and legitimate election? There are always mistakes in elections. There are always people whose votes get thrown out. Things do not go perfectly. And we have put up with some play in the joints because we've had basic buy-in from both parties about the whole system. One of the things I Did keep thinking about- you say play in the joints? I love that. I was that, just- That joints. was a great metaphor. Did you coin that? No, play in the joints. That that's not like a normal thing that people say. I don't know. I it was just like it was just like good to have it. At your... oh, I'm glad. I to thought hear you said joists. I, I, I thought you said joists, no. not joints. Joints. So. You can have play in the joists anyway. or play in the joints. Either way. Um, yeah. All right. So all right. Now that we've totally interrupted you, carry on. Pliability. Um, yeah, and so then the other thing about Bush versus Gore is that. Gore conceded, right? He the all the votes weren't counted, but the Supreme Court ordered the Florida counting process to stop. And Gore said okay, and a lot of Democrats criticized him at the time, but it meant the country didn't go through this seizure over who had been legitimately elected president. I mean, there was still a lot of naysaying and doubting about George um, W. Bush, but it was not shared. Like, if there's a big question this time, there's going to be pressure on Biden not not to concede, depending on what happens. And that's scary, too. And there's a way in which, one more thing, you know, the one of the best ways to um, spread misinformation and propaganda is to accuse the other side of lying and false claims. And we see that all the time, right? I mean, that's what the, fa- the phrase fake news is about. It's all about turning the tables and like, no, it's you, not me. And I just feel like that's another part of this that makes it really hard to sort out that both sides are going to claim that the other side is lying. The one um, trying to find hope in this scenario, because I think obviously we've sketched out the darkest um, and and highly realistic case because of what the president has done. It was extraordinary to listen to um, Frank LaRose on uh, 538, his interview. He's the secretary of state of, of Ohio, who is controversial because he limited the number of drop off spots for ballots. But in his conversation, talking about basically how anybody who sows doubt about the American electoral system and particularly the 2020 campaign is doing Russia's work for it. Now, he didn't uh, say the president's name, but I mean, it was it was basically saying that the exact argument that the president has given and Bill Barr has given are is essentially sowing exactly the kind of mistrust um, and doubt about the American system that the Russians and, and America's enemies want. And so you do have some secretaries of state and we'll see how they behave when the you know, when it comes down to it. But some Republican secretaries of state who have local local pressures to perhaps do the right thing. And the other thing that might be a place of hope is 
Florida starts counting their ballots 22 days before election night. I mean, if you're talking about Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, they're going to be a mess. And they're like and they're a mess up to Election Day. Like they're not going to be able to handle the the increase in mail in ballots. And they're and they're they seem to be thwarting all the efforts to try to get up to speed beforehand. Or it seems that when I'm sort of overstating it. But Arizona and Florida seem to have a much better system. And so you could you you could imagine if you were trying to imagine an optimistic scenario is that on election night for if if this is the optimistic no violence scenario that basically that Florida comes in early. Obviously Florida has been a consistently problematic state uh, to use a word I don't like and Arizona had a problem with its 2018 results as well. So again, this is just I'm trying to be optimistic here. But that Florida, because of the early counting, can actually have a solid result early, that it might that you could have a situation where the number of votes and the electoral votes is too big for the president to complain over. Now, obviously, there are lots of other ways it can go. Um, but if Florida ends up... Yeah, the polls are super tight in Florida, right? I mean, that puts a lot of weight. We always sure, care sure. about Florida, but that means we care extra about Florida because they count their votes fast as opposed to, like, they're a swing state like all the others. Right. I mean, look, Florida could be... There are all kinds of things that could go wrong. I'm just saying if, if, if in fact, by it's close if in it Florida, comes down if, to Florida... If, if, if Florida... Come, if we're if we're taking a look at the scenarios of whether the president would not, you know, give up power, Florida could tell us early in the night where things are going because Florida's system at least has some possibility that can that it can weather the size of the new mail-in ballots. Right, and and sort of the the um the there there aren't very many avenues in which the president loses Florida and then goes on to win the Electoral College. It kind of is that the linchpin of his re-election victory. So if at you know 9 p.m. on election night, it's Biden wins Florida, it's you can't necessarily say that's the ball game, but it kind of is the ball game. It's sort of, it would be in 2008, I think the first state that was called was Indiana for Obama. And it's sort of like, oh yeah, if Obama's winning Indiana, then the election is over and we know who won. And now it's just waiting to see how this plays out. And Florida, to a lesser extent, plays kind of the same role for the president's re-election campaign. Yeah, that's a very that good point. That is a totally fair point. I just have to say, though, that like there's something disturbing about this notion that now we're putting so much weight on the state's process for counting ballots and the fact that Florida does it faster because the votes in the rest of the country matter just as much. I mean, we're essentially penalizing other swing states because they don't have their acts together to count the ballots faster. And in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, there's been no legislative movement that I know of to open the envelopes earlier and get going. In Michigan, the Senate in Michigan actually just passed a bill that would allow election officials to open the ballots and kind of get ready to go. I think it's like 20 hours before before election day or something. And the Michigan House is expected to pass that bill. So there's like a little window there. But I just want to, again, it's like the process of counting, the pace of counting is taking, on, is taking on this huge weight and becomes, and that's because we're all, we're accepting the premise that it, it's got to be, it would, it would be much better if it was resolved sooner. And I totally see it and I share it. But we also have to prepare for the fact that we may not know. And that may be because the ballots are being legitimately counted and processed. So what is it that the media can do, Jamel, the media being abroad, swath of people to try to try to tamp down 
the risk of danger. Uh, I mean, I think that this, if there is ambiguity, it's, it's going to be terribly dangerous for everyone. But shouldn't the media promote ambiguity? If not promote ambiguity, I think the media should be clear and loud and consistent that elections are never actually decided on election night. Not really. Ballots always take time to count that what you see on election night are always projections. You know, normally the projections are on target, but it will take time to count ballots. This is not evidence of, you know, malintent or, or shenanigans. It is simply how the process always plays out and it's being played out that way sort of for understandable reasons over maybe a longer time horizon this time. And that people should not expect results on election night. That really we're looking at an election week, we're looking at an election fortnight, you know, but you're not you're not going to get get an election. Is that night. where and we it, all kill each other? Yes, Fortnite exactly. Like, it wasn't Kabuto. We all kill each other, yeah. and one person um, survived. Kabuto um, was but, but also, Fortnite. But but also on that uh, on that same point, you know, uh, yeah, at the New York Times, um, you know, on our election results pages, in a lot of places for longest for the longest time, they had precincts remaining, which is sort of misleading, right? Because precincts doesn't not tell you how many votes are likely to be out there. And so doing something as simple as changing, and this is what the Times has done, I know this has generally made its way through, changing it to votes that have been received, right, helps get readers in the mindset of understanding, oh, there's still a lot more votes out there. And so we just have to wait to be, we have to wait for them to be counted and collected. I think it, I mean, it's like if we're covering the World Series, I think, and this is true of television, which hopefully will not oh, announce. God, I hope not. Never. Um, uh, you know, if you're covering the World Series, every ball or strike you don't announce with breathless uh, excitement as if it's going to lead to the final determination of the of the the series. And yeah, and you don't say that whoever's ahead in the third inning is going to win. Well, that's right. Or it, or <laughs> let's just torque this analogy even further. Whoever gets the first hit in the first inning is going to win. I mean, when you call Massachusetts for the Democrat, you should basically do it, you know, like in a passing tone. It is not leading to some ultimate, you know, great revelation at the end of the night. We got like seven games to play. And, you know, it is a game that is often decided uh, or series are sometimes decided in the last play of the last game. If that's the but mindset. But has network, have the networks, CNN, Fox and the networks, have they learned and are they going to be able to exercise restraint? Because it's awfully hard when that bowl of candy that is calling Ohio, that is calling Florida is out there to not take that piece of candy. Hey, man. So you. I am I am stacking up the wet blankets, and I am going to be throwing them everywhere Passing I can. Them out. I think people, you know, throwing them around your own network and the other. No, no, too. I know. I mean, I know the people. You know, uh, I mean, particularly Anthony Salvanto, who is the um, surveys and and elections director at CBS, is very is a serious guy and you know, knows this in his bones and, um, and everybody trusts him and puts a lot of faith in him. So hopefully we won't, those of us who are in front of the camera, uh, and hopefully I won't, um, you know, succumb to the moment. Um, we'll treat it like a world series and not like, um, you know, a death match. Just looking back at the primaries, I thought networks did a pretty good job of communicating to, to viewers that things are going to be, take time to count and that you're not going to know results immediately. Although I do that Iowa, Caucus, I and mean, we've all forgotten because the pandemic. That was such a rat fuck. 
it was such an unbelievable rat fuck that was humiliating. I mean, it did make you think, oh, why should I trust this whole process? Look at this ridiculous thing in high school gyms. Who the hell knows what's going on here? And they can't even report results. <laughs> but that so was an issue. Yes. Yeah, I mean, but that's it, and the Democratic Party. It was a primary. It was privately run. Yeah. It wasn't even the state, right? Um, all right, Emily, last, last question on this, which comes from a listener from Adam Bassey. What is the greatest risk to a fair election that is not being talked about enough? Ooh, that's a good question. Lasers. Um, Lasers. <laughs> Meteor strike. Um, I feel, let's see, I mean, I hate entertaining these really... Though I guess one thing is I think we're starting to understand that when we talk about disinformation, the threat is just as much a domestic one as it is one that comes from abroad in 2020. There was just an amazing story in the Washington Post about a troll farm run out of Phoenix, Arizona, which is definitely part of the United States, by Turning Point Action, a conservative outfit that recruits young people. And they were, you know, creating fake Twitter profiles, doing the whole thing to pass around tweets and Instagram posts uh, doubting coronavirus death count, doubting um, the legitimacy of mail-in balloting. You know, it was like Trump talking points spread by this outfit. And that kind of shift where disinformation comes from within, that's a formidable challenge. We don't really have laws or rules that adequately address it. I'm not sure it's go- it quite reaches the level of Adam's um, idea of calling for something that nobody's thought of yet, but it's definitely on my mind. This episode of The GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at chabacasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. All right, let's 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 go to something just like mildly more cheerful, which is the pandemic. Um, so the <laughs> pandemic has changed how basically almost everyone works. So remotely for many people, shielded, more outdoors, with fewer people at home, less, not working because unemployed, working in a bubble, working more dangerously. And I think what it's done is that it's also made people start to think, are the ways that we work in this world normal? Do they make sense? I think sometimes it takes a huge upheaval to, to, to change in a moment something that has existed because no one's asked the question about it for generations. And we are certainly at that, that case, the pandemic is going to do that to all kinds of things. And so one of the things that it's doing too is how much we work. John, I would start with this, which is that the seven-day week is artificial. It does not correspond. I mean, it's, you know, it's been part of most human societies for several thousand years, but it doesn't, there's no reason that there's a seven-day week. And the concept of the weekend is incredibly new. Like there was a, there used to be a one-day, most, most people had a sort of one-day off for work for religious reasons starting, like, you know, last couple thousand years. But the idea of a weekend that's a two-day weekend is very, very, very new. And the word weekend itself doesn't even appear in English till 1879. Should we start with the premise that, that there is no calendar, time has no meaning, and we should just do what we want? Well, obviously time, I mean, yeah, right, but we're never going to get there. I wonder if any of you have felt a, um, a loosening in the joints, uh, as some like to put it, in your own life without the signifiers of, I mean, also I'm a get, you know, get dressed and go to work kind of person, you know, like I have a very regimented life. And so since that's gone, I've noticed some ability to kind of float more easily between work and and not work. But I I guess at first, during the pandemic, I was working more. It was just always right in front of me. So I, I, um, I, I guess I don't go all the way to the four day week, but I'm trying to put my finger on what is the there is some shift. And what is it? And can we keep it once this, you know, in the middle of next year, once the vaccine is widely available and people are actually going back to their offices? What's been revealed is that that so much of what was in the inherent structure of the nine to five work. I mean, like, let's posit that lots of people have jobs where you have to be if you were a security guard who was guarding something. It can't be like, you know what? Not going to guard it for this hour. I'm going to surf the Internet. Like you, there are lots of people who have jobs where you the physical presence and the kind of attention are absolute requirements of the job. And we happen to have jobs that are don't, not that way. We happen to have jobs where you can like float in and out and not pay too much attention. But like for like the, the significant percent of Americans who work in kind of infor, the information economy and ha- were physically present in work sites, like you realize how much bullshit time there was. I mean, Jamel and Emily, you probably don't even recognize this because you both fled the offices. But as somebody who was often in an office, it's like you, all the time you just spend bullshitting, which is really important, but maybe, maybe we can just now get rid of it. Maybe it can now go to taking care of Jamel's incredibly cute child. <laughs> See, I, I don't think that that's going to go away. I, in fact, think that it's going to come back and that what's going to happen is that people are going to find ways to try to recreate something like that, even if they're not going into offices all the time. Um, because that... 
sort of physical proximity in that sense is actually kind of important to yeah. Yeah, I, I just mean, want you, to note. I I love being in offices. Yeah. I love physical proximity. Anyway, you guys have all worked in office with me, and I'm just like constantly irritating and bothered. I love it. So I agree. <laughs> I hope you're right. And and I mean the other thing is that so like downtown DC sort of is dependent on office workers. Like the that's that's what drives the economy of downtown DC. If there are no office workers in downtown DC, there's not really any reason to be in downtown DC. And I I, I sort of wonder if. You know, as people try to get space by moving um, to suburbs, to, by moving to smaller cities and, and so on, if they're going to try to recreate basically those patterns of um, habitation and the kinds of businesses in larger cities on a smaller scale, because they do offer something that is actually important to people's working lives. I don't actually think it's sustainable for large par- large numbers of people to work exclusively from home. Um, in part because it sort of is this insidious, you know, colonization of people's home life by the market that I think a lot of people just resist. They, they're not going to like. And we're already seeing this, right? Like some employers are going to be monitoring your every movement in your home to make sure you're not cheating them. Like we don't have that, but there are certainly people who work uh, office jobs that aren't particularly well-paid and do come with a a high level of labor control that employers are going to try to replicate in their homes. Mm. And I just think that people are going to find that intolerable. Do you, Emily, do you think, yeah, that's sinister. Do you think the four day week is realistic, Emily? I mean, I, I really want it to be, I'm not sure. I mean, certainly not in every sector. And I think for a lot of white collar workers, I'm thinking now of lawyers, part of the value they offer is that they're constantly available. And the four day work week really goes in the opposite direction. But I was going to say something in response to Jamel's point. I mean, I totally get you on the sinister, like big brother corporate overlord front. On the other hand, I have been surprised by the number of surveys I've seen of particularly white collar workers saying that they are happier in their work from home pandemic conditions, despite like the hell of Zoom school that so many parents are going through. And I think part of it is ending the commute, right? Like one thing about the four day work week is you could work longer hours, but do less traveling. I guess in my ideal um hybrid imagination. I mean, hybrid school, maybe not to be such a good idea. But I mean, what if you could recreate some of the office culture that David you love, and I've loved at various times, because you have like, staggered times where everyone's in the office. So like the people you work with directly are there twice a week, and all the meetings that need to happen among you happen then, but then everybody stays home on Thursday and Friday. Even if you didn't have a full third day a week off, if people were home and there was like a reduced set of expectations about the number of hours, how late they were available, that could make a huge difference. I mean, just like having a work week that basically ended at three o'clock on a Friday would be a big deal but for a lot of people. Do you need a structure of a government structure that takes care of a lot of the basic needs of working families in order for this to work? Because if you don't, then everybody will compete and work the fifth day and sixth day and seventh day in order to pay for all the things you need to have in order to go to work. In other words, to pay for the child care or to, um, uh, and, and well, mostly to pay for child care. So is it a precondition of the four-day work week that you have some kind of basic level of services? Yes. And then what would those be? Yeah, and the places that are experimenting with yeah, it are like, Europeans. Yeah, yeah, it's like Germany and... <laughs> Denmark and France and New Zealand, places that are humane are doing that. Yeah. 
No, when you when you look, you mentioned David at the beginning that the weekend, the 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 five day workday, these things are relatively recent inventions. And if you you can you can actually look at right the labor campaigns for the weekend in the late nineteenth century, and they're all. I mean, the, the the case for it is basically look how prosperous we are. Why can't people just have a couple days to rest? And that's kind of been lost over the last you know, century, we've gotten more productive, we've gotten richer uh, collectively, but we're still working five days a week, six days a week, seven days a week. And it shouldn't really be that much of a challenge to say collectively, we're a rich country. Why do we got to work so much? <laughs> and like, well, it's like, work it's, it's Marx, right? It's like you'd work in the morning and then you'd hunt and fish in the afternoon. It's his right, vision right. of it. Do you um, think we psychologically could handle four days a week? Are most people like, oh, yeah, sure, I can handle? Or or do people need the order of work and one extra day would leave them spinning in the street totally at loose ends? I mean, I think it's We'd worth... suddenly find everyone doing shrooms on Friday. Is that <laughs> I mean, your big fear? I mean, I, you know, I, you know I, I might do shrooms on a Friday, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> No, uh, I mean, I think it's worth making a distinction between work in the market for money to pay for things and then, like, work that people do. That could be anything, right? My dad fixes cars. You know, uh, I do photography and photography work. Like, people would yeah. – people have stuff they want to do. They would spend yeah. time with their kids. They would take care of parents. I mean, they would do stuff. They would work. But it wouldn't be work in the market. Right. If I didn't have to – if I had a four-day week uh, work week – I would just devote a day to housework and then I'd have a weekend to kind of do nothing to, you know, eat shrooms. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad I introduced that idea. Yeah. You ran with it. Yeah. Where do we see ne <laughs> Jamel's next column? I basically believe that like that for me that I think six hours of work sort of four and a half days a week is right. Like that's about the right amount of work. Well, yeah. I mean, we're now we're orienting around our own professions, right? Because, like, if you're a doctor right. and you see a lot of patients or if you're a nurse or, you know, if you're a sanitation worker, like, it's just different. You're knocking off tasks with um, – you're going through a day's work and you would change the amount you were doing, presumably. You wouldn't just, like, pick up the pace, right? I mean, you don't want a world in which working fewer hours means you work super frenetically during those hours. Right. Can I ask whether, so you have those jobs where they're location specific and those really aren't part of the conversation and our jobs, we all agree, are idiosyncratic. And But but for knowledge workers who make up, uh, you know, the, the, the swath of office parks all across the land, is there, a, and I've talked to some CEOs who've talked about rethinking basically their real estate costs um, through some of what they've discovered uh, through life in Zoom and thinking more about hybrid workplaces. Is there a way to build it better um, when when people go back to work? Um, in other words, can you take it? Like, for example, in the television realm, people are doing live shots from their living rooms and the technology is there. And it's basically like 3% worse than if you went to a studio in downtown, wherever you were. And maybe it's 5% better because backgrounds like are interesting. That. They're more relaxed. It's not like the hecticness of some weird studio. So it may actually be better and it's a whole lot easier and you can get much better guests and so forth. So there's an, there is something that's definitely better out of this for at least as far as television is concerned. So I'm wondering what the analog to that is in the knowledge work world. 
Or if there is That's one. a good question. Yeah. Teaching's definitely better in person. I like have 100%. done everything I can to teach in person this semester and I regret it not one ounce. And um anyway, I will just throw that in. But there definitely are some things that you could do more over Zoom. I mean, small meetings like like talking to you guys, like anything with like three or four people up to like six people. In some ways, I feel like we finally are at the age of the promised video conference. It could get a little better, but it's pretty good. Emily, I think you mentioned commuting, um, the fact that people don't like to commute. You know, if, if people get used to not commuting to work, that might have a real impact on the kinds of choices they make about the places in which they live, right? It, it may suddenly lead to... I don't want to commute to work. Maybe I don't want to have to drive to go to a grocery store, stuff like that. And so I think there's, when I'm feeling optimistic about all of this, I think that changing patterns of habitation, that may end up being the lasting impact from all of this, that people are, might seek to replicate aspects of urban living in smaller places, which may end up being you know, a good thing across the board. But then I, I'm, I'm thinking about land use all the time, like a crazy person. So this is just, you know, where my head on that. What is goes. going on with you and Iglesias and all the, everyone, all the smart people are like, oh, it's all land use. Everything's land use. It used to be all capital. Well, I live in the small, I live in Charlottesville, this like town of 50,000 people. And which means like, you know, there's, there's something ironically Jeffersonian, but the fact that like my delegate in the house of delegates lives down the street from me and I see her like every other day, just on the street or that, like, I know all the city council people. Like, I just know all the people on the planning commission. And so it's like, I just develop opinions about it. <laughs> and well, and also, doesn't Charlottesville have an issue with, I mean, it's got, it, it's got a units problem. I mean, it's got a housing problem. Yeah, we have, we have, a, we have a affordable housing crisis is a misnomer because it implies that there's not a housing crisis for people who could pay a little more money. But there is, in fact, a housing crisis right. for everyone up and down the, the scale, unless you yeah. are quite affluent and can, you know, drop a half million dollars on it for a home. So, I mean, Jamel, are you imagining a world in which people truly spread out all over the country and they're not tethered to an office like they could fly in twice a year? Or are you imagining a world, which is like the world that I live in, where my commute to door to door is like two and a half hours at best. So I would, I really don't want to do that more than once a week, but I can go in once a week. I could go in twice a week if I have to, like that's a really different length of how long your tether is to your office. Right. right? I see more the latter, but then I think the thing I say specifically is that people are going to replicate aspects of being in downtown areas where they already live. Right. So they, they may not be going into New York or DC or, you know, downtown Philly or, you know, downtown Richmond, but they do like the fact that it's a short walk from where they're working to getting a cup of coffee, right? And, that, and then you zone differently so you can actually get a cup of coffee and go to the corner store, right? Right. right. And that kind yeah. of thing, you know, over time, you know, a bit there, a bit there can actually transform a built landscape. And so that's just, I wonder if that's in some places, if that kind of thing is going to happen. Uh, well, I think it would be a tragedy if a bunch of small cities just stole the thunder of large cities, but we'll leave you that do? for another day. Wait, seriously? Yeah. Why? Why? Because <laughs> Why I do you think, think that? That's historically, so weird. historically, <laughs> large cities are centers of gravity that gather talent and culture and creation and innovation and have an outsized impact 
on the world around them. And if you disperse that too much, I, can, I believe in dispersing it some. I think it would be good if there are if there are 10 cities in the U.S. that were centers of innovation rather than, you know, three. But if you disperse it too much, I think you you lose the benefits. I think it will be terrible for the country if people stop gathering in New York City, people stop gathering in Los Angeles and San Francisco and and Chicago because they are now living in in the Hudson Valley or they're living in New Haven. So I know you I, I, I know you want to move on, but just it's worth saying that there have always been the big, you know, New York, L.A., Chicago, but there were many more mid-sized cities that played a similar function, right? Like St. Louis at one point played that function in addition to Chicago. Um, and it was more uh, regional, Cleveland, right? Right. It was much more it was much more regional in in scope. And so you had, you know, Detroit, Cleveland, St. Louis, a whole host of um, of cities in that regard. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Uh, listeners, well, viewers want to know what we're each drinking during chatter. Let's start with uh, Emily Bazelon. Why don't you chatter first? Are you drinking anything? I was drinking this weird combination of one of those blackberry ice seltzer drinks and just some regular water. So it's like a funny color. So my chatter is about a kind of amazing, to me at least, essay in the New York Review of Books this week by Janet Malcolm. It's um, called Second Chances, and it's sort of a coda to the afterword of The Journalist and the Murderer, a book that I read every year because I teach it to my students in the writing class I teach. And the afterword of The Journalist and the Murderer is about Malcolm's experience at that point, the story she wants to tell about being sued for um, libel and defamation by Jeffrey Masson. It's this extremely important lawsuit in highfalutin journalism because when he first sued her, he claimed that she hadn't he hadn't said various things that made him look, in his view, extremely foolish. And at first she couldn't find her notes, then she finally unearthed them. And so in The Journalist and the Murderer, she's saying basically, like, he lost, I won, I found my notes, I was vindicated. In this follow-up essay, it turns out that she has all this regret over how this the first of two trials in this case went. She felt that she was made a fool of by Masson's lawyer. And then she got a do-over at the second trial, which she writes about. But along the way, she drops this, to me, crazy revelation, which was that she took, she says, she took a whole bunch of things that Masson said at various junctures of her reporting over time, like months, and set them all in one scene in a restaurant, as if he had said them all to her. Yes. And she calls it like the long scene or something. It has like uh, the long talk, the long quote. It has like, and she claims this is like part of New Yorker culture, that this was a, a common practice at the magazine, that you would take all these things someone had said and then effectively stage them in one setting. Literally my, like, my mouth was open so wide. I couldn't believe this completely not allowed in journalism, completely not okay. Like no magazine I've ever worked at, certainly not the New Yorkers, fact checkers would ever, would ever abide well, this well, and let it go but, in today's culture. Well, it's not crazy, today's culture, but, I don't but think Joseph it was Mitchell, like, did you read Joseph, Joseph Mitchell? Yes. Everything Joseph Mitchell made is a complete confabulation or concoction and of random things that happened at different times and made up dialogue. So it's not like they never did it. Yes. 
Well, it's not like they never did it. So she cites him and basically, he actually made up composite characters. Um, he was this revered New Yorker writer for many years, had all these incredibly endearing characters in New York who he ran into. That's what his book's about. So she cites him as like, oh, that's a bridge too far. I'm not putting myself in the Joseph Mitchell camp, but basically is claiming that this idea of the long quote, the constructed quote in one place when in fact, like, that that was a normal thing. And so I was talking to um, you mean Link Kaplan, who used to write at The New Yorker and teaches his class with me. And I was like, is this true? And he was like, no. Like, this is not at all how, you know, he worked at The New Yorker, how he understood it. it anyway, it's just this... This weirdly for me, I'm kind of obsessed with this whole um, discussion of journalistic ethics that Malcolm launches. And she's such a deft writer that she kind of carries you along, even in this new essay, even though I thought this was nuts what she was describing. I really also recommend it just because it's a beautiful piece of writing. So anyway, Second Chances, New York Review of Books, so, Janet Malcolm. So I'm a little nervous that my piece on skateboarding with Jesus and Johnny mm. Cash is not going to make mm. it into the New Yorker now. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I have to say, I'm not, I'm like not, I'm definitely not all the way over with Malcolm, but I do think there's a kind of, um, I found this actually having been interviewed for a few times in recent years and like for Q and A's and they didn't at all clean up my quotes. And so you have all these run on sentences and I just feel like there is a, you, you want to convey to readers like something that it that will be pleasure pleasurable for them to read and make sense to them and often human speech doesn't work that way and so there is i think there's some degree of fixing stitching that it should be permitted that isn't that isn't considered a vast breach of ethics but i i defer to you emily because this is your day-to-day -day job more. um john more. dickerson what are you drinking what's your chatter well, I have um, four different things that I'm drinking. Um, Are you drinking them simultaneously, so, or do those represent the different phases of your day? Some of them are relics from earlier parts of the day, and based on one of the bottoms of this coffee cup, it might be earlier in my this century. Um, no, uh, that, the most recent thing I've been drinking is wine. Um and uh, so my cocktail chatter is um, is about the man who killed the man who killed President Lincoln. It's based on a rabbit hole. I went down Amelia. I hope I'm pronouncing your last name right. Um, Frappoli uh, tweeted about this. And then I went uh, looking and his name was um, Thomas Corbett, but came to be known as Boston Corbett, which we'll get to in a minute in a minute. He was a hatter which meant that he soaked rabbit and beaver pelts in mercury. And as everybody here knows from uh, their history and their Lewis Carroll, that this caused hallucinations, psych psychosis, and also something called Hatter's Shakes, which was a twitching. It also encouraged people to follow the Grateful Dead. Anyway, in the early part of his life, uh, things were not good for Corbett. His wife and child died in, in childbirth. He became a drunk. He then was found on the street by a preacher and convinced to to uh, embrace religion, which he did so um, so strongly that he became known as the glory to God man because he would he would burst out into um, uh, songs and psalms and Bible passages. So he's in Boston. He continues making hats. And this is the problem. Historians think that this led to it all throughout his life. It's punctuated by moments of going back into the hat making trade, which historians think basically made him go crazy, although Ambrose Bierce would say that perhaps dedication to religion did. But 
it was under this influence that in July of 1858, he was um, propositioned by to what were called at the time prostitutes while walking home from a church meeting. He was really shaken up by this, went home, turned to his Bible and unfortunately read chapters 18 and 19 of the Gospel of Matthew. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. And there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. John, I'm not sure I like this how this, pa- where this oh, is going. Oh, man. I hope he just did the eye. Took, I hope he did the eye, only this, the eye. He, t- he <laughs> took this passage literally. He then ate a meal, went to a prayer meeting, and then checked himself into the hospital. In 1861, he joins the Union Army and is a, constantly shouting out, get thee, get thee behind me, Satan. Man does not live by bread alone. Bible passages and quotations in the middle of combat but doesn't get killed then calls out his colonel for swearing against god gets thrown in the in the whatever the clink i guess you call it and was to be shot because the colonel was so offended he breaks out of that or gets basically let off the hook he then goes back and joins the cavalry and ends up at andersonville the famous confederate prison for five months they don't kill him because he is so moved by god that he basically just keeps firing on the confederate soldiers they put him in jail he gets out rejoins the army john wilkes booth in april of 1865 shoots lincoln they surround him 12 days later in port royal virginia he won't come out of the barn so they burn it their explicit orders are do not shoot booth take him alive but corbett boston corbett is is full of God's fury and says that God told him to shoot Booth. And so he shoots him through the cracks in the barn's wooden siding. Does he just happen to be there? Like, what's he doing there? Why is he there? He, he rejoined He rejoined the army, and he was part of the posse that went after uh, went after John, John Wilkes Booth. This is after basically being kicked out once, rejoining, then being in Andersonville. He then is heralded as one of the great, a newspaper called him one of the world's great Avengers, and he was photographed, and Jamel, you, you probably know Matthew Brady, the famous photographer of the era. There is a photograph, and maybe a, is, it, is the photograph up? There he is. Okay, who shot John Wilkes Booth? There he is. This was turned into postcards that were sent around. He went back into hat making. He grew increasingly paranoid, and what happened after the war is half the people in the North thought you deprived us of being able to have a, a, a trial of John Wilkes Booth, and in the South, they were angry that he shot him. So he grew increasingly paranoid and he uh, to sort of take care of him, the Kansas House of Representatives allowed him to be the doorkeeper. But because of his paranoia, he found himself waving his pistol at anybody who offended him, which was a bad idea when you're trying to make laws. So they put him in an asylum. He broke out of the asylum and went to live the rest of his days in Minnesota, except in Minnesota, he was a part of a hunting party that died in the Great Hinkley Fire, which was one of the greatest disasters at the time in the late 19th century. And so that is the end of the, the tale of woe of Boston Corbett, um, who um, had a very weird life. There needs to be a movie about this guy. I'm sorry. This this is like a this is a screenplay waiting it's to like be a written. Coen Brothers movie. It's a com- yeah, it's a comet, a, com- a dark comedy. The Revenant. It's yeah. And I left so much stuff out. Oh my gosh, he was a he was quite a guy. Um, Jamel, what are you drinking, and what's your chatter? Uh, I drank a glass of uh, mint citrus punch. It's um, you brew some mint tea. You add a cup of fresh squeezed lemon juice, a cup of fresh squeezed orange juice, a half a cup of honey, 
and uh, some water, and then you you know fill half a glass and you add a half glass of citrus seltzer. It's very good. It's from a cookbook called Jubilee, which is uh, a cookbook of uh, African American cooking, and it's sort of taking an anthropological approach to African American cooking. The author Tony Tipton Martin, I think, is her name. The author basically she just became the editor has or something. Studied this week. Yeah, Cook's Country. Um, Cook's Century. Yeah. Yes. That has co- collected and studied hundreds of recipes and basically you know, narrowed things down that these are representative dishes of black American cooking. And each recipe in the book is sort of a composite of a lot of different recipes. And there are also historic recipes included in the book as well. I spent like six months last year cooking through it. It's a wonderful book. People should check it out. But that's not my chatter. Um, oh, my God. That, good, that, that's just like a... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, my chatter is so uh, uh, many people, especially nerds, will know that the second season of Disney's The Mandalorian, which is a Star Wars series, starts next month in October. And while I was watching the preview for it, and I was there was also a feature about the production of the second season and also the first season that I watched, and I found it really interesting. So I thought I would share. Most people, I think, know what rear projection is, which is in film, sometimes you cannot actually capture everything you want in camera at the time. And so you film something, you know, you film a chase, uh, cars driving, or you film in Eyes Wide Shut, this would, there's a scene of uh, Tom Cruise walking down the city street. You film someone walking on a city street, and then you, you project that behind the actor on, the, on set. And then you film the projection and the actor, creating the illusion that the actor is there. Taking that idea, producers and creators uh, of The Mandalorian constructed an airport hangar sized that is lined with, I'm probably getting this wrong, basically sort of LED screens um, that they can then create computer-generated backgrounds on the fly. And then the actors are filmed with the computer with the with the computer generated backgrounds in the back so the camera is capturing these backgrounds you're not added in in post-processing so it gives you a lot more flexibility for for setting up shots and and such it's very cool so question is this pandemic inspired i mean it seems like it would be helpful in the pandemic because you could control sets more and have like less moving around or is it just happened to be right now I think so. The first season of The Mandalorian aired last year, and I think it's more inspired by just trying to find a way to cut costs. And you also are because it's the sci-fi series; you know you're going to be jumping from location to location in the show, and so and you know you're going to be doing a lot of a lot of computer animation too. So why not try to find some way to combine all those things, and also for the sake of the actors and the director and the the lighting people and everything, the gaffers. Uh, have a have something that makes things a little more tactile, which does actually transform how the actors perform. It's very different to perform with a physical thing versus something inserted in after the fact. My chatter. Well, I'm drinking a some IPA that I bought today. I don't know what it is, but here's some free product placement. Um, my chatter is something that my youngest child Gideon pointed me to a wonderful YouTube page, a YouTube channel, which has the name, the oddly satisfying. Channel. Oh, it's so it's like ASMR 
um, like, but it's things being extruded, things being lined up perfectly, things being wrapped speedily, things being folded, being peeled off. It is extremely, it's very orderly. Everything like happens and gets finished in the most satisfying way. And it's incredibly relaxing. It's like picking a, like a scab that's just ready to be picked off. And it just, it's just picked off perfectly. I love <laughs> watching it. I was with you until that, yeah, no, an- that, that so analogy. <laughs> right. And wrong. Sorry. But the rest of it is cool. Yeah. It's a good thing you had your visual display. Well, it's, it's, all right. it's extremely, extremely relaxing. Check it out. Oddly satisfying. Listeners, you have also sent us great chatters. This week, uh, you tweeted them to us at, at SlateGabFest. And this one comes from at Janet Cetera, Janet Green. And she begins it very... Charmingly, I feel a little too Canadian submitting this as potential chatter. But this CBC interactive story recounting a family's epic canoe trip is great. And it is an amazing story about a, a father and his two sons, ultimately one son, because one gave up the, the trip, who paddled from the northern reaches of Canada all the way down to Brazil in a canoe, in, like some river, some ocean going, minimal portages. It's, and they did this 40 years ago, and they were held at gunpoint a bunch of times. They nearly were murdered in Honduras. And it's great. So check it out. It's called Paddle of the Century on the CBC. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, who is off screen. And our researcher, also off screen, is Bridget Dunlap. And also off screen is Faith Smith, who arranged this nice live show with our partners at Texas Tribune. Thank you, Texas Tribune. Thank you, Evan Smith over in Texas. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is managing producer. Alicia Montgomery, executive producer. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and Jamel Bowie, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Our Slate Plus today is uh, we're going to answer some of the questions that you have sent us in this live stream um all right emily let me throw to you the first one can you speak about the pennsylvania federal court decision re the government's COVID restrictions are there similar lawsuits in other states uh, yeah hmm. so governor tom wolf issued the kind of restrictions we've seen in a lot of states and this is a pretty surprising decision i would say given what we normally think of as the breadth of a governor's emergency powers based this decision has to do particularly with the pennsylvania statute i don't think it's going to translate necessarily to other states i also think the ruling will be appealed and it's coming at a time when we're at least in a kind of lull of how much shutdown we need to be mandating statewide in some states at least. But of course, this is very much a live issue going forward because we don't know what the future is going to bring and whether governors are going to feel compelled to issue more of these orders over the winter, though, boy, do I hope not. All right, John or Jamil, either of you can take this. Questions about uh, Mike Bloomberg. So he says he's going to put $100 million to help in Florida. This good for democracy, bad for democracy. And also there's a sort of second question, which is shouldn't he use some of that money to re-enfranchise a bunch of felons by paying off their fines? Uh, Do you have a strong opinion, Jamel? I don't have... I can talk, take the second part. Okay, you can take Go the second part. That's good. That's a good Basel oh, thing. But the first part of it, is it is $100 million spent by Biden? Is that going to help Biden, John? I don't know. I feel like it's going to make the rubble bounce a little bit. I mean... Um, 
On the other hand, the average of polls in Florida has it a, the spread at about one or two points in Florida. So it's quite close. So, you know, even if you make a tiny little bit of a change, then maybe that matters if all goes to to um, Biden. I guess what I would think what I guess what I would say is. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 